So this is class number 16 of Faithful Lives. Um, I suppose you all know the Apostles' Creed. It's the I believe in God the Father, which we recite every Sunday Mass. At the end of the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So this formula contains in brief the fundamental elements of the, Christ, of the church's hope about the last things. So what are the last things? When if any of you have been on a retreat, most probably one of the topics in one of the talks that the priest will give is on the last things. It's death, heaven, and hell. So the outline we have first, we're going to talk about the resurrection of the body. Next, the Christian meaning of death. And then eternal life in intimate communion with God. And then hell. And then purification needed to meet God. And then children and baptism. So first, let us talk about the resurrection of the body. So the resurrection of the body is the continuation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we know that on the third day, Jesus Christ resurrected. So the first Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. And this extends to all, to us, to all men and women, living and dead, just and sinners. That will take place when Jesus Christ comes at the end of time. So at death, the body is, the soul is separated from the body. With the resurrection, our body and soul are reunited again forever. So the dogma of the resurrection of the dead refers to the fullness of immortality in which to which mankind is destined. But at the same time, it is a vivid reminder of our dignity and in particular of the dignity of the body. It speaks to us of the goodness of the world, of the body, of the value of a life lived out day by day, and of the eternal vocation of matter. So we see in how the church takes care of the dead, this dignity that it accords the body of, of, of man. So the body is already dead, but we take very good care of, of that body. We prepare it well for the wake. We spend time um, with it. We go to Mass to commend it to, to our Lord before we bury it in um, the cemetery or before we bring it to the crematorium. And in all of this, we see very delicate care that the family and the church affords the body of, of man. 
And this is because of the great dignity of the human body, not only of the human body, but of all the, all the creation of God, which is um, what our world is made of. So our risen body will be real and material, but it will not be earthly or mortal. St. Paul spoke of the resurrected body as being glorious and spiritual. So in the final resurrection, which will take place when Christ comes in glory, during this time, the definitive judgment of the living and the dead will be made. With respect to this doctrine of the resurrection of the body, four points can be made. There. So church uh, has always proclaimed her faith in the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. When we say resurrection of the dead, we mean the resurrection of the body where we mean that the body and the soul of the person are joined together again at the end of time. So in death, the soul and body are separate, separated. And in, during the resurrection, the body and the soul are reunited forever. I was saying earlier that with respect to the doctrine of the resurrection, we can talk of four points. So we're saying that the final resurrection excludes or does not include the theory of reincarnation. So what is reincarnation? Um, the theory um, according uh, to this is that the human soul after death migrates to another body repeatedly if necessary until it is finally purified. So this is common, more common to uh, Buddhism and to religions coming from India. For us Catholics, Christians, we believe that men die only once. And also, this explains our veneration of the relics of the saints. This shows the church's faith in the resurrection of the body. So we give due veneration um, to parts of the body of a certain saint. They have reliquaries where maybe a tooth of a saint is placed and that is taken care of because that is a relic. And we venerate that relic because that's part of the body of, uh, of a saint who has lived here on earth and lived a very holy life. So cremation per se is not um, illicit, which means it's not prohibited unless it has been deliberately chosen for reasons that go against the faith. 
um, for example, in order to repudiate that uh, doctrine of the resurrection of the body, how will ashes resurrect again? You choose to be cremated because you do not believe in that doctrine. There you see the bodies of the early Christians buried um, one on top of the other out of veneration, out of respect for the body of the person. So the resurrection of the dead accords with what Holy Scripture calls the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. Not only will mankind attain glory, but the entire cosmos in which we live and move will be transformed. So this world we live in will not achieve its full perfection until the time comes for the restoration of all things. This hope of the definitive installation of Christ's kingdom shouldn't weaken, but should rather strengthen with the theological virtue of hope our effort to achieve prog progress on earth. Knowing that we will never achieve a perfect world should not stop us from trying to create a better world each day. For example, um, scientists trying to study how to mitigate um, climate change. We might say, never mind, there's no need to do all of those because we will never be able to fix the world because God said so himself. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of the heaven and earth. And then may let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So before our earth becomes something like heaven, that will only come during the second coming of our Lord, during the resurrection of the body. But before that time comes, we should all still continue to work in order to make our world a better place each day. So now we go to the Christian meaning of death. So the mystery of death can only be understood in light of Christ's resurrection. In fact, death, which is the loss of human life, seems to be the greatest possible evil in the natural order. Precisely because it is so definitive that it can only be overcome completely when God in Christ raises all men and women. On the one hand, death is natural in the sense that the soul can separate itself from the body finally. From this point of view, death marks the end of man's earthly pilgrimage. After death, a person can no longer merit or offend God. So man's choice in life, whether to please or to offend God, is made definitive at, at death. It is no longer possible to repent. Immediately after death, the person goes to heaven, to hell, 
or to purgatory. So church calls this the particular judgment. The fact that death marks the limit of the period of trial gives us the opportunity to put our life in order, to make good use of our time and talents, to act uprightly and serve others. On one hand, the, tr the church teaches us that death has come into the world into the world through original sin. In this sense, it must be regarded as a punishment for sin. So someone who wants to live separated from God must accept the disagreeable consequences of sin on society and on himself. However, Christ faced death in an act of complete and free submission to his Father's will. And Christ's obedience conquered death and won resurrection for all of us. So now we go to eternal life in intimate communion with God. So in creating and redeeming us, God destined us to eternal communion with him as heaven so jesus communicated the father's promise to his followers in these words well done good and faithful servant because you have been good and faithful over little things enter into the joy of your lord so we read that in matthew in the gospel of saint matthew so eternal life should not be seen as a continuous succession of days of the calendar of how we of how we view time but rather as a moment full of satisfaction it will be the moment to submerge ourselves in oceans of limitless love in which time before and after no longer exist. So eternal life is what gives meaning to human life, to observing ethical norms, to general self-giving and unselfish service, and to the effort to communicate Christ's teaching and love to all men and women. A Christian's hope in reaching heaven is not selfish or individualistic but encompasses every other person so a christian should be totally convinced that it is worthwhile to live a fully christian life heaven is the ultimate end and the fulfillment of the deepest human longings as we read or we hear from saint augustine in his confessions he wrote you have made us for yourself lord and our heart is restless until it rests in you eternal life is the main goal of christian hope so to those who die in god's grace and friendship and are perfectly purified they live forever with christ they are like god forever for they see him as he is, that is, face to face. Theology has called this state 
of being able to see God face to face, the beatic vision. And that is what heaven consists of, they say, being able to see God as he truly is and um, adore him uh, face to face. So never forget that after death, you will receive love. And in God's love, you will find, in addition, all the clean loves that you have had on earth. The joy of heaven comes to its full culmination with the resurrection of the dead. So in heaven, we are unable to sin. It does not mean that we cease to be free, but that we are unable to sin because in seeing God face to face and seeing him as the living source of all created good, it is no longer possible to want to sin. So divine grace does not eliminate human nature, neither in our being or our faculties or in our personality, or in what we have merited in life. Therefore, those who rejoice in the vision of God, there is also distinction and diversity. Not in the object, which is God himself being contemplated without intermediaries, but rather in the quality of the object. So the one who has more charity partakes more in the light of glory and sees God more perfectly and will be happy forever. It's telling us here that the degree of our happiness depends on how big our charity is. But it does not mean that we will not be as happy because somebody else uh, seems to be more happy has a greater amount of happiness. Her basket is bigger because we, our basket is also full. So what is hell? Hell is to die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love. And which means we have chosen to be separated from him forever by our own free choice. So this state of self-exclusion from communion with God and with all the blessed is called hell. So God does not predestine anyone to perpetual condemnation. So it is man himself who by seeking his ultimate goal outside God and his will makes himself an isolated world into which the light and love of God cannot penetrate. So hell is a mystery of rejected love. We are free to choose whether to love or not to love. And for someone who has chosen not to love, it is tantamount to rejecting God. And when, that, when we do that, that is what hell is.
So when we talk of hell, they talk of the pain of loss and the pain of the senses. The pain of loss caused the most suffering as it consists in the unending separation from God for whom the human heart always longs. As we uh, read from St. Augustine earlier, you know, my soul is restless until it rests in thee. And here, that soul who has chosen to reject love will feel that pain of loss because he will be forever excluded from being able to see God forever for all eternity. And then there is also the pain of the senses. The teaching of hell in the New Testament is a call to us to be responsible in the use we make of gifts and talents we have received. A call to conversion. So the existence of hell make the gravity of mortal sin very clear and the need to take every measure to avoid it. Chiefly, we try to avoid hell through trusting and humble prayer. So the existence of hell is a mystery. It is a mystery because of the justice of God for those who shut themselves off from his merciful pardon. So now we go to the purification needed in order to meet God. So those who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are assured of eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification to achieve the holiness needed to enter the joy of heaven. So the possibility after death of being cleansed from the impurities and imperfections of a more or less misspent life then appears as a new sign of God's goodness. An opportunity to prepare ourselves to enter into intimate communion with God. And purgatory shows God's great mercy and washes away the defects of those who long to become one with him. There are those who say that it is even the soul personally who elects, who chooses um, to undergo this purification because he realizes how that he is not yet ready, that he is not yet pure, and that he is not worthy to see God face to face. And so uh, this soul chooses to purify himself further before being brought to see our Lord. So in the Old Testament, we read of the purification after death. We read about it in, in, in Maccabees. But if he was looking to the splendid, re splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, 
it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin. So we should see purgatory as not a, as not a place, but should be thought of as a state of temporary and painful separation from God, in which venial sins are pardoned and the soul is cleansed from the inclination left by sin and the temporal punishment due to sin is fulfilled. So sin not only offends God and damages the sinner himself, but because of the communion of the saints, which we, which, in which we had a class before, it damages the church, the world, and humanity. Um, sin does not only affect the, the, the victim and the person who committed the sin. It affects all of us. So theologians teach that those in purgatory suffer greatly according to each one's situation. Nevertheless, it is a suffering filled with meaning, a blessed suffering. Therefore, Christians are invited to seek purification from sin in their present life through contrition, mortification, reparation, and a holy life. So being in purgatory and suffering there in order to cleanse oneself is a blessed suffering. Whereas the suffering in hell um, is a suffering for all eternity and it has no purpose. It's not going to purify that soul eventually and lead it to, to see God in, in, in time. But forever that soul is going to be suffering for suffering's sake. Because he has chosen to reject um, the love that God was offering, was offering him. So lastly, we will talk about the children who die before they are baptized. So we are taught and we believe that we have all have original sin. So if a child dies before and before it's it is baptized, then that child dies with that stain of original sin. So what happens to the child? So the church entrusts children who die who die without being baptized to the mercy of God. So we do not know really how God will, will treat these children, but we know that God is all just, but we also know that God is all merciful. So there are reasons to think that God in some way welcomes them, whether because of the great affection Jesus showed for children or whether because his son was sent so that all might be saved. So who are we to judge or to say what happens to these children? Only God knows. But at the same time, relying on divine mercy is no reason for delaying the administration of the sacrament of baptism to newborn babies. So that is why 
we should not wait too long before we have a baby baptized. Uh, we do not wait until we can afford a big party for the baptism before the baptism of the child. Because it is very important that each child of God is baptized so that the gates of heaven are opened up to each of his children.